Welcome to Destination Murder, the true crime podcast. Each week the hosts, that's us, BFS Megan and Tegan, cover stories from a new part of the world. Get ready to combat your travel bug and feed your true crime obsession. Hello, Tegan. Hi, Megan. How are you today? I'm good. I have my coffee, it's caramel cookie, and I'm ready to get this podcast started. Well, welcome everyone to Destination Murder, our new podcast. This is episode one. I'm not sure if you can tell by how awkward we sound, Yeah, this is the first um, episode. Yeah, I'm so excited. I'm so happy that you thought of this, so... Yeah, it's been an idea that I've had on the back burner for months, and I was just like, you know what? We just have to do it. Yeah. I already talked to Tegan about true crime and murder cases like every single day. So we might as well record it, put it up and make a podcast out of it. Yeah. She literally texted me, hey, do you want to do this? And I think I responded back in like five seconds being like, yep, <laughs> let's get the ball rolling ASAP. So yeah, it's been a long time coming, but we're here. So Um, Do you want to talk about how you came up with the idea for the podcast at all? So I've wanted to start a podcast for a long time, but have never really had a good idea. And so this year, I don't know when or how, but I just kind of thought, you know, it would be fun because my favorite part about listening to true crime podcasts are the episodes where they cover stories from like a different part of the world. So I was like, what if, what if we had a podcast and we only did cases from different parts of the world. And then I was like, you know what? Tegan would be a great person to do this with. So Destination Murder was born, I guess. Yeah, no, I I always love it when like I'm watching a show or listening to a podcast and like somewhere I know comes up. And it's like, yeah, like you hear about things in like the States or, you know, California, Florida, New York all the time. And like, whenever like anything happens in like Vancouver or like I guess anywhere in Canada or in Australia. I'm like, oh my God, I know that. I love like being able to be like, I know exactly where that happened. Yeah, you're like, that's me. I've been there. I've been there. (laughs) Exactly. So we basically just wanted to start this so we could do be like, I've been there. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly where that is. Yeah. So this podcast, every episode, each of us are going to exchange a story from a different part of the globe. And at the end of each episode, we draw another country or city or state or province from a hat or a randomizer or whatever. And that's the one we do the next episode. We have to do one from that country. So today we are doing cases from our home province of British Columbia. We figured before we get started on any jet set podcast adventures we would start at home and go from there yeah you have to start from home base touring the world like this because covid's shut everything down right now so i guess this is our little way of exploring so exactly i think we're going to rock paper scissors for who goes first on their story megan and i are currently doing this over zoom because of covid so it's definitely a little bit interesting yeah but i guess do you want to rock, paper, scissors now? <laughs> All right. Are we doing it on three? Yeah. Okay. Ready? One, rock, two, paper, three. Scissors. Okay. <laughs> we um, both pulled scissors. Um, okay. 
Megan, you go first. I get to s- sit back and relax and find out some new information. I will say before you start, um, we had my sister verify that neither of us are doing the same case. We didn't let each other know what we're doing, so it would be a surprise. So I have no idea the case that Tegan picked, and she has no idea the case that I picked. Yeah, so. So this is exciting. Okay, I'm ready for you to start whenever you're ready. Okay, let me just take a sip of my caramel cookie and espresso coffee. So, I am doing the Weld's Great Provincial Park murders. Have you ever heard of these? No. I didn't even see that when I was looking up murders. Yeah, so... Okay. I found this on, of course, Murderpedia, and so I got sources from there, and Wikipedia, of course... (laughs) Not the best source, but you know. You live with what you have. Yeah, we're not academics. And there's an article on strangeoutdoors.com and colonacapnews.com and a 1999 Toronto Sun article by Max Haynes. So, Wells Great Provincial Park, let's just put us, zoom into the part of the world that we're going to be talking about. Wells Great Provincial Park is a massive provincial park in British Columbia, Canada, which is on the west coast of Canada. Wells Gray is close to the Alberta border, so really close to Banff. I'm sure everyone listening, and of course you, Tegan, know where Banff is. I do know where Banff is. Yeah, so it's north of Banff and close to Jasper National Park. Um, in the, I think they're called the Caribou Mountains, so kind of not quite the Rocky Mountains, but a little bit lower, or a little bit more west. I am not an expert on, uh, or anywhere in BC other than, you know, the Vancouver area, the Sunshine Coast, and the island, because I'm very much a coastal BC gal. But this part of BC is absolutely gorgeous, stunning, tons of wilderness things to do like Wells Gray Provincial Park is super popular for camping and hiking and you know all of the outdoor stuff that I don't do (laughs) (laughs) but I imagine it's very gorgeous so this case takes place in 1982 so on August 2nd 1982 uh, the Johnson family from I think they're from Kelowna. So Kelowna is in the Okanagan, about a four-hour drive from Vancouver and probably like a six-hour drive from Wells Gray Provincial Park. So they were away from home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So the Johnson family set out for a a camping trip near Wells Gray Provincial Park, not quite inside the park, but uh, really close by because there's lots of stuff to do around. Um, So the Johnsons were Bob, Jackie, the husband and wife, and their two young daughters, Janet, who was 13, and Karen, who was 11. They're from Kelowna, and they were planning to meet their grandparents, George and Edith Bentley, to go camping together. So a very common event here in yeah. BC. Um, the family, of course, was avid experienced campers, like so many people here. I mean, I went camping like six times last year, so it's very popular to do here. And I'm sure like pretty much everywhere in North America, too. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, ooh, we're special. We camp. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't camp. (laughs) You camp, though. Yeah, I camp. Okay, so the family were very experienced campers, and the grandparents, so the Bentleys, had just recently bought a 1981 Ford Camper Special, which is like a, a, a Ford truck, and then they have like a camper on top, so like with the mom's attic and stuff. Just picture like a truck with a camper in the bed. Okay. 
they were going to spend two weeks together camping and they'd rented like a little silver boat, like a little tinny uh, to take out fishing on their trip because the place where they were going was lots of fishing. So they drove out with the Ford camper with the grandparents and then the Johnson, so Bob, Jackie and the two daughters uh, just took their little car. Picture like a 1979 car. Okay. It's teal blue in my head. I don't know why. Okay, I think it's like a bluey gray in reality, but yeah. So they set up camp in, like, I think along the Clearwater River near what was called the Bear Creek Prison Site. So I guess there was an old prison up there in the 80s along Bear Creek or near a place called Bear Creek. I couldn't find a map of this case or, you know, anything. So I just am kind of going off what happened in my head. (laughs) The, The geography that you've created for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this, their campsite is apparently accessed via 11 kilometers, so about seven miles of old gravel logging road. The family was last heard from on August 6th, when Grandma Edith called and spoke to another one of her daughters. So, uh, when the two weeks was up, um, around August 16th, Bob didn't show up for his work at a local lumber lumber mill in Kelowna. And this was immediately concerning because he was like one of those great guys who hadn't missed a day of work in like 20 years. Yeah. And then after a week of him being a no-show, his work alerted the authorities. So I I feel like a week is kind of long. Yeah. Like most of the time when I hear like cases like that, it's like they didn't show up for work and like immediately the police were called. Maybe there's like they had to wait for a certain period of time or something. Maybe. Or maybe they're just like, oh, I guess he just took all five sick days and like. Yeah. Do they even have sick days in the 80s? (laughs) I don't know. Who knows? So after a week, his work alerted the authorities and the RCMP, so the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, began a search for the missing family, which of course then became focused on Wells Gray Park and the surrounding areas. So like I said, that like Wells Gray is this massive wilderness park, like most of BC is, as soon as you get out of a city or a town, it's like remote. There are so many old logging roads and you can literally just disappear in BC. It's really easy, BC and a lot of other places in Canada, especially because BC has so much like thick, dense forest. Yeah. A massive search was conducted throughout the park and the surrounding areas, but the search didn't turn up anything. The RCMP couldn't find the family or either of their vehicles. On September 13th, so about a month later, a mushroom picker was picking mushrooms <laughs> in the forest as mushroom pickers do. Yeah. My sister was like, I think there's a word for it. It's foraging. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah. And this forager comes across a burnt out vehicle in an up an old surface road deep in the park. Ooh, spooky. Yeah. And of course, it's not normal to come across <laughs> a burnt out vehicle in the I middle of the wilderness. Woods. Yeah. Yeah, I would say like nine times out of ten, it's highly concerning. <laughs> I would say 10 out of 10 times is probably concerning, but, you know, Megan likes to to take a little bit more risk than I do, apparently. So the mushroom picker alerted the RCMP and they came to investigate, as RCMP investigators do. When investigators arrived, they found, like, such a terrible scene, of course. What else were you expecting from a burnt-out car in the middle of the wilderness? The vehicle was sitting in a little clearing just off the Forest Service Road, or the logging road, I guess, and the driver's side door was open. Inside, they found the pretty much cremated remains of what would later be identified as the four adults. According to one article I read, they were just like a pile of burnt bones in the backseat. 
where are the yeah. babies? I don't think I want to know. It's probably going to get worse. It always gets worse. The two little girls' bodies were found in the trunk, also badly burned. Sweeties. I know. Forensics revealed that the families had been killed by shots to the head. I think by a 22 caliber shotgun. I don't know guns. I don't think you know I guns know either, guns, but... but I know shotguns. <laughs> that's that's not nice. Um. So some locals had spotted them camping in the Bear Creek area. An important thing to keep in mind was like the police didn't uh, release to the general public that the family's campsite was in Bear Creek or that they had been found in Bear Creek. But locals, I guess, knew because they pointed them to the campsite. So they went to the campsite and they found six 22 caliber shotgun shells, leading investigators to assume, obviously, that this was the murder yeah. site. Um, still, there was no sign of the camper at all. Or the boat, the little yeah. tinny. Mm-hmm. The campsite was pretty much cleaned up, except for two sharp sticks, which they assumed were like marshmallow roasting sticks. And this is such a creepy part, but I don't know why I think this is creepy, but Bob's favorite beers were like cooling in a nearby stream. Oh, yeah. So he like put them there, planning to just go and get one. Yeah. Like, well, like before I had kind of thought that like maybe they had just packed everything up and like they were leaving. But that to me means that like clearly they weren't about to leave, so someone must have like cleaned everything up and didn't realize that his yeah. beers were in the stream. Yeah, it's really creepy. So that explains why they hadn't been found before because someone seems to have murdered the family and stolen their camper and camping gear fleeing the area. So the RCMP was like, Oh, it could be a local because the car was found in such a secluded area. But we can't find the camper van at all after this big search. So they were like, oh, he's probably gone or they're probably yeah. gone. So the RCMP released the information that they believe the murder suspect had stolen the vehicle and left like to the public. And so it's like the camper with the boat attached on top. And apparently a Canada-wide manhunt ensued. Someone reported that, okay, this part is where it gets very confusing because all of the articles I read said something different like i couldn't get the proper order of these events but here's what i figured okay. out i'm ready <laughs> someone reported that a camper exactly matching the families had been spotted two provinces over in good old saskatchewan and that was being driven by two french-speaking males so i guess they assumed that they were on their way back to quebec yeah. and then there was a series of sightings of this camper across canada which all eventually was proven to be false So this might have happened first, or this next part might have happened first, which was in order to find the camper and thus the killer. Do you want to guess what the RCMP did? I don't... Did they put a a reward out for something, or...? Um, The RCMP was quite um, innovative, I would say. So they constructed an exact replica of the camper van. (laughs) With, like, the same colors, the same make and model of the van and, or, or the truck and the camper, and even put the, like, little silver boat on top. And they drove it across Canada with news conferences held in cities before they got there in, like, little towns. They're like, so there's a camper van that's going to come through. If anyone has seen this camper van before, please let us know. <laughs> that is so weird. <laughs> I mean, honestly, they're like hoping that the sight of this camper would trigger a memory in someone because they were 
because it was like a month later, like a month and a bit too late. They're like, oh, maybe they didn't realize in like August, there's so many campers coming through. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought that was funny. Like, what if, what if they forgot to give a press conference at a city and then someone heard about it and they're like, oh my gosh, I saw that camper van come through (laughs) end of September. I need to let them know. And it was just the police. Yeah. They were like, oh, um, actually that was me. It was just Doug in the camper van, just driving across Canada. But apparently this created a lot of like media stir around this case. And of course it's really creepy because an entire family goes camping in a provincial park and just disappears. So it probably hits home to a lot of Canadians and a lot of people in the States as well. I, I feel like this is the reason why people don't go camping is because there's some creepy like wilderness person out there watching them. Yeah, well, and I just thought of this, too, because I go camping in provincial campsites a lot, and there's usually um, a ranger there. Like, you have to pay your ranger fees for your camping spot, so there's usually someone in, like, a camper van, like, at the edge of the the campsite that you have to, like, meet at least twice. So, like, the fact that there's not even someone... I think that's because they weren't in the park itself. Um, they were like in the area, but in the Clearwater Valley. So it wasn't actually and on the campgrounds. They were back. Yeah, they just they were back. They just kind of camping. Yeah, backcountry, like just outside the park. Yeah, okay. So that would explain why they didn't see a ranger or any park staff, like checking in and checking yeah. out, because they just m- made their own campsite. So after the van, after they sent Doug out to drive the replica camper across Canada, they got, I, th- I think it was like one, like over a thousand tips from the public, but all of them went cold or were proof false. So they kind of did it all for nothing, but it, it did help get word out about the murder. So that was like, I guess, October 1982 and... The RCMP had no suspects, so they couldn't really do anything else. Like, the case went cold. The summer of 1983, so, like, the next year, the murderer still hadn't been caught, and literally no one went camping in the area for good reason. clearly. (laughs) Like, okay, Tegan, listen to this. Only 18 out of 105 campsites in Wellsbury Provincial Park were occupied over Canada Day. That's ridiculous. You have to book Canada Day camping spots like six months in advance. It is so hard to camp on that long weekend. That's insane. But, I mean, obviously you wouldn't want to camp in an area with a murderer (laughs) on the loose. Those 18 campsites were very bold. Okay, so fast forward to October 18th. 1983, over a year after the murders uh, and the Canada-wide manhunt with Doug in the trailer, (laughs) two forestry workers come across the Bentley's burnt-out camper along another old logging road only about 20 kilometers or 15 miles from the murder site (laughs) and about 30 kilometers or 20 miles from where the bodies were found. So it was was there the whole time. how How did they not see that? So apparently it was along the, like on the side of a different mountain. So the campsite and the bodies were found like at the base of one mountain and then along another mountain, the campsite, or sorry, the camper was found. You would think though that like they would drive through every single road in that area. But I guess it's just all forest roads. 
Like, this is out in the boonies, like, middle of nowhere kind of thing. But yeah, that just shows how crazy and how, like, creepy backcountry can be. Yeah. So the RCMP got a bunch of criticism because they spent so much money on this Canada-wide camping trip with the replica camper, and the entire time it was right there. But they'd already searched the area, I would assume, twice. Like, once yeah. when they first were looking for their family and again when they had found the bodies. Unfortunately, after being airlifted, to a forensics lab in Vancouver, there was no new evidence found in the camper. So it's still, like, it was a great breakthrough in the case, but it wasn't a breakthrough at all because they couldn't find anything. But the RCMP were now convinced it was a local because there is such a remote, like, it was, it's such a remote area. Only people who know the area well would know where to hide the vehicles. So because the RCMP were now certain a local was responsible, they started investigating the nearby town. So I think the closest town is called Clearwater. But yeah, but how scary would it be if you lived in Clearwater or like anywhere close by? Like, oh, this entire family was murdered in the middle of a, in the middle of the wilderness while they were camping. Yeah, and it's definitely one of my neighbors. Like we thought the guy was gone, ran away with their camper, but the camper was here the whole time. They started investigating the local towns and they received, I I think they received over 13,000 tips. And pretty much every tip led investigators to, like, a dead end. Um, but finally, the RCMP received a tip about a local man named David Shearing, um, who now goes by the name De- David Ennis. So we'll call him David Ennis from now on, okay. even though back then he was David Shearing. Okay. Partly because Ennis is much easier for me to say than Shearing for some reason. <laughs> Who So David Ennis had apparently been asking the person who tipped RCMP off about how to re-register a Ford and how to fix a hole in the door right around the time that the murders happened. So like back in September 1982, he was like, hey man, how how hard is it to re-register a Ford and like fix a hole in the door? I don't know, like shotgun hole or... Yeah, I don't know why this person didn't tell police sooner. Yeah. So the then 23-year-old David Ennis had lived in the area all his life and was constantly in trouble, allegedly. (laughs) He'd been arrested previously for assault, drug possession, drinking and driving. uh, And at the time of the murders, he lived four kilometers away from the family's campsite. So probably like, I don't know, what is that in miles? Like two, three? Yeah. Yeah, like within walking distance yeah. pretty much. Um so yeah, it was pretty easy for the RCMP to locate this guy cuz he's already waiting to appear in court <laughs> near Kamloops over a charge of stolen property. Oh, easy. Yeah. So the RCMP arrested him and took him into questioning. Um so they had a good reason to believe he might have had something to do with the family's murders because there was apparently a bullet hole in the door of the victim's Ford, which was information that was not released to the public. So him asking about how to fix a hole in a Ford is very suspicious. Yes. Was, yeah, there was a hole in the door where the RCP were like, this is probably our guy. So when they arrested Ennis, um, apparently he thought an arrest was for a hit and run where he had killed someone. <laughs> oh no, sweetie. <laughs> He's like, I know. oh, not for that one, huh? Okay. Let me just ramble through all the other things that I've done wrong so you can arrest me for those <laughs> So apparently he, like, confessed immediately to that one. And I bet you the investigators were like, wait. Excuse me, what? So the investigators who questioned him were named Sergeant Michael Easton. I think that's how you say it. I didn't look it up. I probably should have. And Constable Ken Liebel. 
I also didn't look that one up and probably should have. Um, so after he confessed and they like were chatting with him and like let his guard down, they were like, what about the family in the woods? And he was apparently like kind of like, oh, what? So they started questioning him about the murders. He apparently accidentally revealed that he knew the family was camping in Bear Creek, which had not been released to the public. But this is something I'm confused about because it said that the locals let the RCMP know that the family was camping in the area. So wouldn't everyone in the town know exactly where the murders happened? So I don't know why they would assume that this was not public knowledge because it was definitely local knowledge. Yeah. After some questioning, the David Ennis dude finally admitted to murdering the family of six. David Ennis had stalked the family while they camped, wanting to steal from them. He'd shot the four adults first, as they sat around the campfire, and then the girls as they slept in their tent. Mm. Yeah, so sad. Very sad. He put the bodies in the car and went home for the night. He then returned the next day to clean the campsite and then drive the family car to the clearing where he lit it on fire and where the car would be found like a month later by the mushroom picker. The forager, if you will. He took the camper and the Ford truck home, looted it, and then... After I assume he figured it would be too much effort to re-register and fix the hole in the door. He was like, meh, I don't need this. Might as well burn it. Yeah, so he drove the Ford and the camper to the other mountain, down that long logging road in the middle of nowhere where he's also set it on fire. The family's valuables were found at Shearing's home along with a 22 caliber shotgun, which then matched. Is it 22 caliber shotgun or 22 caliber rifle? Are they the same thing? No, I think there's a difference. I think the shotguns have like a bigger bullet. Like it's like a big casing like that and it shoots a mm-hmm. whole bunch of little stuff. And then a rifle is like a bullet. Okay, so it might have been a rifle then. I don't know, but it, it was a gun and they found it <laughs> and they matched it. So yeah, on April 16th, 1984, nearly a year and a half after the Johnson Bentley family murders, David Ennis pled guilty to six counts of second degree murder and was given life in prison without possibility of parole for 25 years. Wow. This is the maximum penalty for uh, second degree murder in Canada. And apparently it was the second, only the second time this sentencing was passed out. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I think probably part of the reason why it was so severe was because of all the like the media and it was like we spent a lot of money finding this guy better lock him up for good yeah like everyone knows who he is and they're afraid of him so Mm -hmm. better send him away oh but wait tegan it's not over (gasps) oh no i was about to clap for you there (laughs) glad i didn't hold the applause missus (laughs) yeah sergeant michael eason just couldn't stop the feeling that Something wasn't right. He just couldn't imagine the then 22-year-old David Ennis, who was a kid back then, pretty much. I I guess, like, 22 is, is, like, old, but it's not that old. Like, you're really, like, you really don't, still don't have a grasp of the world. Yeah, you're a very young adult. Coming from us 24-year-old adults who are so much wiser. Yes, so much older, so much wiser. <laughs> okay, um... <laughs> But so yeah, he couldn't imagine this 22 year old kid murdering an entire family just because he wanted their stuff. Yeah. Like that doesn't make sense. He could have just stolen their stuff while they were like swimming on the boat or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
So he went to in- back to interview David Ennis. And now, Tegan, are you ready for the real story? Yes, I am ready. Ennis did indeed stalk the family. Uh, he first saw them when they set up camp on August 2nd, 1982, and he spent several days spying on them from the woods, which is like... Very creepy. So creepy. Yeah. Um, also, quick tidbit, Sergeant Michael Easton wrote a book on this case, and it's called The Seventh Shadow. I don't like So that. it was like... There were six of them, and he, this guy was the seventh shadow, like, in the woods. Spooky. Isn't that a good book name, though? Yeah, it's a very good book name. So he spent several days spying on them from the woods, but he didn't want the possessions. He was drawn to the two girls. Oh, no, I had a feeling that this was going to go in a, a pedophile kind of situation. You guessed it. He apparently had pedophilic sexual fantasies. So on August 10th, 1982, so like just about a week after the family set up camp, he walked into the campsite as the adults sat around the fire and shot them each in the head. The girls had already gone to their tent because they were ready for bed. Um, then he ran in and told them that there was a dangerous biker gang that had come into the area and all of their family had run for help. So he was there to protect them. Oh no. Yeah. So while the girls were probably terrified and stayed in their tent, David Ennis loaded the adults' bodies into the back of the family car and kind of pulled it away just out of sight. But I would assume, like, these girls are, what, 11 and 13? They would know that something is up. Like... I I definitely wouldn't believe that my entire family, just all like, four, had run for help and yeah. left us with this random dude that we'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. But I feel so bad for these girls. They must have been so terrified. Yeah. So after he had hid the bodies, one article said that he then crawled into the tent with the girls. That's gross. This next part is like something out of a nightmare. He kept the two young girls alive for a week afterwards. He hid them both at his ranch uh, nearby and a small fishing cabin on the Clearwater River. The three were nearly discovered at the fishing cabin when a prison guard from the nearby prison like knocked on the door to to the cabin and was like, Hey man, I'm supervising these two prisoners as they fish on the river. (laughs) Just letting you know. Don't be worried about these two prisoners (laughs) fishing. That is so strange. Yeah, that's so funny, though. Here's a means to escape, but don't worry, I got my eye on you. The guard didn't notice anything suspicious. He probably would have noticed that the dude is weird as heck and kind of creepy, but he had hid the girls behind the door of the cabin and the guard didn't see them or notice anything unusual. After that, Shearing apparently took the girls back to his ranch and decided he had to kill them. August 16th, he took the younger one for a walk in the woods, telling her to turn around so he could urinate. And he shot her in the head. And then he did the same with her older sister. Like, how terrifying would that be? Like, your sister goes for a walk and doesn't come back. Yeah. You probably definitely know that you're next. Mm Mm-hmm. So he returned the girls' bodies to the campsite and put them in the trunk of the car and then drove the car to the clearing, set it on fire, and you know the rest. Sergeant Easton wanted to make sure this was the true story, so he double-checked everything. He went and talked to the guard, and the guard confirmed exactly that. He remembered seeing him at the at the cabin on, like, the right day. How bad would the guard Yeah, he feel, probably though? feels so bad. He went into the cabin, and he found David Ennis's initials carved into the wall of the fishing cabin, along with J.J. for the older daughter, Janet Johnson. Gross. Everything was confirmed. This this second story was apparently the true story. 
today David Ennis is in prison. He apparently has renewed his faith in God as all murderers do when they're in prison mm-hmm. and lives in a, and lives in a medium security prison where he has a TV and a garden. Oh, that's really great for him. So yeah, he's still alive and he's also married to some lady that he met while he was in prison and they have two kids together. Okay, like what? I like I don't understand people who are like oh, let me, you know, fall in love with a criminal. So, like, that's gross. But then also, why would you have a have multiple children with someone who killed children and has sexual tendencies for children? Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, you don't know who... You don't know what he's telling this woman. I guess that's true, but... Ugh, gross. No more plot twists. No more alternate endings we are done but i did want to mention that on in september 2008 he's up for parole but was denied and he's applied for parole again in 2012 and 2014 and i think 2016 all times he was denied for parole because apparently he was supposed to have done some rehabilitation in prison but he's never done that so he's not up for he like i don't think he qualifies for parole and a petition with like over 13,000 signatures was signed to keep him behind bars. He is up for parole again next year, 2021. Fun. I guess we should probably go sign some petitions to make sure that he's not allowed out next time. How old is he now? In his 60s? So he he was born in 1960. So yeah, he's like the same, same age as our parents. Yeah, um, he definitely has a lot of life left in him, so he probably should not be let out. That's all I have to say. Yay, Megan! First case done. First case done! It was probably really awkward. (laughs) I'm sure my storytelling abilities will get better. Yeah. With aid. I was thinking about it when you were talking. We are, like, the two most awkward people. But also on top of that, we... I don't know why we decided to do this. Neither of us can tell a story without getting sidetracked by, like, a million things. I was thinking the exact same thing. I was like, why did we decide to tell stories? We, like, take 60 hours to tell one story because we end up telling 600 along with it. Anyways. Yay! Very good. Um, okay. So, I don't know why I decided to do this as my first case. I decided to kind of do a heavy hitter very sad, very disappointing. Oh, no. <laughs> Probably should have gone first because this is not going to end oh, no. well, but that's fine. Do you have I any know. guesses? I'm thinking like BC, it, it, like the only thing that's really sad that I can think, I mean, all of them are really sad, but like extremely sad would be like Robert Picton, all his murders. Yeah. So I'm not doing Picton. I am doing... Clifford Olson Jr., The Beast of British Columbia. Oh my god, I was going to do that one. Ah. I decided not to, though. Because I was like, oh, this is so hard. Okay, oh my god. Yeah. Um, so I got my sources from um, Murderpedia as well, Wikipedia, um, My Crime Library, and Global News. Okay, so um, Clifford Olson Jr. was one of four children of a milkman. Um, I don't know why that's important, but apparently that was, like, all over the place. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know what milkmen are. Milkmen are so peaceful. Like they're so cute and peaceful. How could they ever? Yeah, how could they ever create a monster? Okay. So, he was born in Richmond, British Columbia on January 1st, 1940. Um, Throughout school, he was a bully and a thief who tormented cats and dogs, um, which... First sign of a psychopath. Standards, yeah, serial killer kind of stuff. Um, And he would even steal berries and flowers from people's backyards and then try and sell it back to them. (laughs) He's like, oh, (laughs) I've picked these flowers. Would you like to buy them? So he was an astute businessman, but also a psycho. Yeah. So he sounds like a CEO because apparently like CEOs score highly on like the psychopathy scale or whatever it's called. So this guy, he um, scored 30 out, 38 out of 40 on Oh that my test. god, that's really yeah. high. Very, very, very high. My score is only 32. Oh. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> uh, he skipped school constantly and dropped out after finishing grade 8. He lived with his parents until he was sent to jail for break and enter when he was 17. During the years between 1957 to 1981, he was arrested 94 times. Oh my god. Yeah. Mainly charges of fraud, armed robbery, and sexual assault. How does someone... Okay. So how does someone get arrested like 95 times for that many... Like, what's the number that they're like, okay, we should probably lock this guy up for longer. Is it like 100? I don't know. Um, I guess one more than that, because I have a good ending going your way. Okay, good, 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 good. good. Um, during his stints in jail, he had the reputation of being a violent rapist. Oh. And he was also an informant, which sometimes led to him getting early release for good behavior. Other times, he had his sentences extended because he was constantly trying to escape. So that's pretty much the backstory of what I could find about him. Now on to the not so great part. Well, he seems like a great guy. Seems like yeah, a so far, stand up really citizen. going. Yeah, it's going good. So some of the victims had been raped and sodomized. Some were bludgeoned. Others were stabbed, and one was strangled. All had been drugged, and all killed in. A murderous spree lasting only nine months from November 1980 to July 1981. So the first girl that was found was um, 12-year-old Christine Weller. She was heading home to the motel her family had lived in um, when she disappeared. Christine did not have a great upbringing and had run away from home a couple times before. So when she didn't come home that night... Her parents were not very concerned, and it took them over a week to report her missing body to the police. Over a week? Yeah, because they thought that she had just run away. One less mouth to feed, I guess. But, like, what... I guess it was a different time, different parenting style, but, like, even if your kid runs away, you should still call the police. Yeah. Like, hello? It's crazy. Her body was found murdered in Richmond, on December 25th, so Christmas, um, so a couple weeks after she had uh, disappeared, she was strangled with a belt and stabbed 19 times. Her body was dumped in the woods near the hotel. 
Or the motel. So she was there the whole time, like, just near the motel? Yeah. Oh, my God. How old was she? 12. Oh, my God. Poor little baby. So all of these kids are basically between 9 and, like, 16, 17 years old. Um, Colleen Dagnault was 13. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, she was 13. She was murdered on April 15th, 1981 in South Surrey. She was coerced into taking a ride from Olson. He had offered her a job and then he offered her a drink containing some drugs that had rendered, rendered her unable to move effectively. Um, Olson then drove Colleen to a secluded location in South Surrey where he raped, then murdered her by repeatedly hammering blows to the head. Oh my god, what a violent way to go. I know. Um, How old was she, Surrey? 13. 13. His MO was basically, you're going to see a lot of him offering rides or offering jobs to these kids. They probably, you know, pocket money and when an adult tells you to they've got a job for you back in that time i think that it was kind of like you listen to the adult even yeah it was before stranger. stranger danger and also yeah. richmond was like kind of farm country back then like yeah. more so than it is now they were kids that were probably more on the poor side yeah but it was probably also normal like oh i've got like a job on my farm for you i'll give you like five bucks yeah probably had neighbors do that kind of stuff to them all the time so what was yeah exactly it? any difference yeah less than a week later darren johnsrud what who is 16 was abducted from a new westminster shopping mall darren did not fit the pattern that olson was establishing he was around the right age but he was a male so that was different and as we all know i think Serial killers generally adhere to the same MO. So this change made things a lot more confusing and difficult for uh, the police to, I guess, figure yeah. out what was going on. Yeah, because if you're looking for the murderers of two girls, you might not make the connection. Yeah, they kind of had realized, or the investigators kind of thought that they were dealing with a bunch of runaways and not a serial murderer. He was murdered on April 21st, 1981 in DeRoche, which is very far from New West. I don't know if you've ever been to DeRoche. Where is DeRoche? I've never heard of that. So if you take Lowheat Highway to Harrison instead of the number one, you drive through DeRoche. Oh, it's um, just like a little it's suburb a very, of like Maple Ridge or something. No, it's like a, it's a, its own city. Um, oh. It's very small. The DeRoche General Store has amazing beef jerky. It's the only beef jerky that I'll eat. Oh, really? I drive through DeRoche when I'm going camping, so that's where I know or how I know where that is. But it's definitely like over an hour and a half from New West. So his body was found on May 2nd, so a couple of weeks later. He was murdered by repeated hammer blows to the head. A week after Darren's disappearance, Olson was arrested for shoplifting. On May 15th, 1981, so Darren was murdered on the 21st of April. May 15th, Clifford married his girlfriend and the mother of his child, Joan Hale. The couple had met in February 1980. They were married in the People's Full Gospel Church in Surrey a month after their son, Stephen, was born. Four days after their wedding, oh no, Olson. <laughs> apparently, they didn't go on a honeymoon. Oh no, Olson murdered Sandra Wolfensteiner. 
she was 16. She was murdered May 19th, 1981. So like literally four days after their wedding in the Chilliwack Lake area. She was picked up at a bus stop in Surrey and driven to this part of Chilliwack Lake Road where she was murdered by repeated hammer blows to the head. That's like an hour and a bit drive. Like that's quite far to drive. Yeah. June 21st, Ada Court, who was 13, um, never returned home from a night of babysitting. She was picked up walking on North Road in Coquitlam, which is very close to where I live. Um, And he had driven her to a remote area near Weaver Lake, where she was murdered by repeated hammer blows to the head. I don't know where Weaver Lake is. I've never heard of that lake. I kind of feel like we should look it up because that's like absurd to me that I don't (laughs) know where this lake is. I was going to look it up and I completely forgot. In the Fraser Valley. It seems like he abducts children from the Vancouver area and then brings them out to the Fraser Valley. Yeah, I definitely thought it was close to me. Um, I was like, how do I not know this lake? Okay, next one. Simon Parrington was nine years old when he was murdered on July 2nd, 1981. He was picked up two blocks from his home in Surrey. Olsen had promised to give him a ride. During the course of the ride, he was taken to a remote area in Richmond, given a couple bottles of beer, and then he was strangled. Oh my god. Yeah, so, which this one is kind of weird because... I mean, he brought him to Richmond, which is where he's from, and didn't take him out to the valley. Maybe because he was so much smaller, he felt that he didn't need to do it in a remote area. Yeah. On July 7th, five days after Parrington was kidnapped, Olsen was charged with an indecent assault on a 16-year-old girl, but he was released. An indecent assault? So sexual assault? Probably. Or like the 1980s version? I don't know. Maybe he like exposed himself. I guess so. But that would be called indecent exposure. exposure. Right? I don't know. Although maybe it was called assault back then. I mean, it's still kind of assault now. I mean, it really is, but... Okay. July 9th, so two days later, Judy Cosma, 14, disappeared. Her body was found on July 25th. She was picked up in New West and had been violently mutilated and dumped in the nearby Weaver Lake. So not super nearby, but... Yeah, this is like someone who's never been to Vancouver yeah. writing this. Like, oh, Weaver Lake was right very, nearby. Yeah, and you're like, very close. <laughs> no, actually, it's not. Um, Olsen went to a new height of pervasion and psychotic behavior when he telephoned the home of the Cosma family landlord, then played a tape of Judy's cries and agony. Oh my god. Yeah. What a psycho. Yeah. He was recording his murders. I guess so. I don't know why else he would do that, but he also called her closest friends threatening that they would be next. How would he know this also? You'll find out soon. Oh my god. By this time, he was already a suspect in the murders, but despite the fact that the police were keeping him under periodic surveillance, he was still able to go out there and do these awful deeds. On July 23rd, 15-year-old Raymond King disappeared. His body was found two weeks later. 
He was picked up at a bus depot in New West and driven to Weaver Lake again. He was thrown down an embankment and died from his head hitting the rocks. Ooh, what is so special about Weaver Lake to this dude? I don't know. I have never heard of this place. I guess maybe that's the... um, That's probably why. (laughs) Interest in it? Okay, and then two days later... On July 25th, 18-year-old Sigrin Arnd was abducted while hitchhiking. When found, police required dental charts to identify the body. Oh, gosh. She was murdered in um, a remote area off of River Road. She was picked up in Coquitlam and then bludgeoned with a hammer. And then thrown in a ditch with water to be buried. I just drove uh, along River Road in Richmond the other day. I got lost and (laughs) drove along that road. It's quite, like, it's right along the river, obviously, because there's River Road. But also there's, like, nothing around. It's just, like, big warehouses and, like, industrial stuff. Yeah, and that's now, so, I mean, 40 years ago. Yeah. It was probably a lot more barren than it already is right Yeah, now. definitely. Okay, and then a few days later, Terry Carson went missing from the apartment complex where Christine Weller had lived. Wait, so another victim went missing from, from where, like, they say, lived in the same apartment complex? Yeah. Oh, Wow. Her corpse was found. Do you want to guess? Uh, Weaver Lake? Yeah, you are You are right. So it was July 27th. She was picked up at a bus stop and driven out there and was murdered by strangulation. Seems like he just cruises around looking for kids waiting for the bus and is like, hey, I have a job for you. Yeah, I think that's exactly what he was doing. So July 28th. Um, police were beginning to feel sure that they had their man. An officer set up a meeting with Olson under the guise as he wanted him to be an informant because he's done that in the past. Um, and he asked if he could dig up any information on all of the uh, lower ma- mainland children that were missing. Olson seemed eager to help. And the officer would later recount that he believed Olsen wanted to be caught because he offered to find the locations of the nine victims. Oh, that is so creepy. He also said that he would need to receive money for his efforts. Um, This was the last time the two met. Olsen now knew that he was likely under surveillance. Even though this was true, uh, he still managed to kill again only two days later. So July 30th, Louise Chartrand, 17 years old, went missing while hitchhiking. Don't hitchhike! I know. I think that's, like, one of the big things to, like, come out of, like, the 80s is stranger danger and don't get into random people's vehicles. That is not a safe way to travel. No, you are so vulnerable when you enter a vehicle with someone. You also have no idea who's getting into your vehicle. Like I know, Just yeah. because you're a good person doesn't mean the person that you're picking up is good. Yep. So the strange thing about this is this murder happened on the same day that the RCMP finally set up a central task force to deal with all of these missing children. She was picked up while she was walking to work in Maple Ridge, 
and was driven to the Whistler area where she was murdered by repeated hammer blows to the head. So that's like a two hour drive. Also the opposite way. So he picked her up in the Fraser Valley, but then drove her out to Whistler. I wonder if he did that with any other victims. Yeah, I don't know. So apparently Olsen had driven over 10,000 kilometers in rented cars looking for victims. So from that, he had huge debts with rental car companies. And his resolution to his debts was he broke into two homes in early August to try and steal some stuff to sell it so that he could pay off his debt. It's like, I got massive debt from Hertz rental car. (laughs) Exactly. Olsen was finally arrested on August 12th when officers who had been uh, following his car to Uculet saw that he had two young women in the vehicle with him. So now he's on the island. Yeah. Like, he's just, like, all over the place. When he had ordered one of them out of the car and to leave the area, police who had been listening from the bushes nearby... (laughs) I don't know how. Like, were they just sitting in a car and the police (laughs) were, like... staked out on the side of the road. (laughs) I'm picturing, like, two police officers, like, hiding in the bushes, like, okay, okay, go get her. Go now. Now. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so they arrested him for drunk driving and took him to jail. Because was he actually drunk? I guess so. I guess they needed to find something to le- legally bring him to to jail. And after searching his car, they found the address book that belonged to uh, Judy Cosma. So that's how he was getting everyone's phone numbers and stuff to call them because he had oh. her address book. So he he like stole her address book and was just calling everyone she knew and tormenting yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. That is that is so sick. Yep. Um, and then I guess because they did find her address book in the car, he was charged with her murder. Yeah, I should hope so. So August, or what am I saying? January 11th, 1982 is when um, Olson's trial begins. He entered a plea of not guilty to all charges. He then came back to court the next day and reversed his pleas. So his court trial was only, or I guess his trial was only three days long. So he was like, yeah, no, I I didn't do it. And then the next day he was like, just kidding. I think I did. Yeah. I wonder if there was like a plea deal that was made. Oh. Oh. Uh Oh. (laughs) Oh, no. At the time, um, he was charged with 10 murders, but then they introduced the 11th charge he also pled guilty that to that. He received life in prison with the recommendation from the judge that he never be granted parole in his lifetime. Good. Confirmed after the trial, the police had given Olson $100,000 to reveal the locations of the victim's bodies and to provide details of the crime that only the killer would know. So was this before he was arrested or... After he was arrested. I think it was after he was arrested. He was like, I'll give you the information of where, like, I'll confirm that it was me. But you have to give give me $10,000 per body. And the 11th one was a freebie that he just threw in. Oh, my God. They could have spent that money on the Cross Canada road trip that they sent Doug on (laughs) from my case. (laughs) Don't give it to the murderer. (laughs) 
Yeah, so they put it in a trust fund for um, his wife and their son. Oh, right, because they had a kid. Yeah. So obviously there was a huge amount of public outrage and they were all mad because they had given him $100,000 when actually they had only given him $90,000. He later offered to the cops a massive cut price deal, 20 more graves for another $100,000. Unfortunately, the state decided it was not worth it. Wait, so he had he had another 20 victims? I don't know. See, like, that's the thing is, like, is he just saying that to get money? Or did he actually kill another 20 people? But, like, that first case, like, that's, like, it probably wasn't the first time that he had done that. Like, yeah, it was probably just the first time that he had kind of been connected to it. Yeah, so he was sentenced to 11 concurrent life sentences with no parole uh, eligibility for 25 years. In 1992, after complaining about back pain, Olson was sent for x-rays at Kingston Hospital. Technicians found handcuff keys stolen from a prison guard tucked up into his rectum. Oh, fun. <laughs> Wait, you said that he's he served life with no parole for 25 years? Yeah. I wonder if this was the first time that had ever been handed out in Canada, and my case was the second time. That would be so weird, because what, this, their court was in 1982. When was, yours was 1983. 1983, yeah. It probably was. Oh my god. That's so funny. Wow. Although mine was for second degree murder. But it was the same sentence. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he tried to escape from prison. Didn't work. The escape, the escape attempt thwarted. Olson was transferred. After almost a de- decade of bad behavior in Kingston, um, he moved to the special handling unit in the max- maximum security federal penitentiary in uh, Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. And he continued to just terrorize, I guess, people. In jail? Yeah, like he was constantly trying to find whatever ways he could get out of his incarceration. So he went up for parole every single time, even though he wasn't eligible. Um, Olsen was transferred back to the Super Maximum Security Special Handling Unit in St. Anne de Plains. Uh, I'm sorry. In Quebec. For my French. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> um, in north of Montreal, in Quebec. August 19th, 1997, he seeked for the faint hope clause of the section of the criminal code, which allows prisoners to seek early release after just 15 years of his life sentence. His application was dismissed in minutes. Yeah. Why, why did he think that was a good idea to apply for that? What was it called? The, like, second hope clause? Faint hope. Faint hope. That is so weird. I know. July 18th, 2006, Olson again appears before the National Parole Board, this time having spent 25 years in prison. This time it takes half an hour for his application to be rejected. 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 Yeah, you just got rejected. So another controversy developed in 
March 2010, when the media disclosed that Olson was receiving two federal government benefits while imprisoned. A total of $1,200 a month, Olson was eligible to receive the old Canadian Old Age Security Pension, all persons meeting residency requirements as to the length of time in Canada are eligible to receive this pension at the age of 65, and Olson had turned 70 January 1st in 2010. He was also eligible to receive the Guaranteed Income Supplement awarded to pensioners with low income. The money in question was being held in trust for Olson. That is so weird because what does he have to... like his? He doesn't have to pay fees to be in jail. Like, he, I don't think he even would pay taxes in jail. No. Do you pay taxes in jail? I don't think so. You don't have an income. Like, prisoners shouldn't, like, they should have money for sure. Like, they should be able to have a bank account and have funds and everything. Because you do get, like, you can buy stuff in prison and stuff. Yeah. But he doesn't need it because he's never going to get out. Why does he have a trust? His kid already has $90,000. <laughs> in the 80s. Like, how many monies is that today? A lot. So the Canadian Taxpayer Federation testified before the Federal Standing Committee for Human Resource Development and had the Bill C-31 passed, which would terminate pension benefits for prisoners. The organization also presented the government with 46,000 petition signatures requesting that Olson no longer receive the benefits. On June 1st, 2010, the government moved to terminate Olson's payments, calling the fact that he had been receiving them outrageous and offensive. He must have had a really good lawyer. Yeah. The faint hope clause or whatever. I've never heard that before. And like, I've never heard it in the news or anything either. And then somehow he was getting two types of government benefits. Do all prisoners get that? I think probably everyone was. Oh, but then... (laughs) Then they were like, wait, that's wrong. Can you imagine the other prisoners like, ah, this one guy ruined it for all of us. We were all getting our pensions. It was fine. Well, and like, you didn't contribute to society. Like, for the past 30 years, you've not been helping the economy. You haven't been... Even when you were able to, you were just killing kids. That's not contributing to society. You shouldn't get any benefits. (laughs) You were never a good citizen. Um... So, November 30th, 2010, Olson applies for parole a third time and is denied. September 30th, 2011, Olson dies, aged 71, from terminal cancer. Nice. So he's not still alive. Nope. He has passed on. I hope he is in whatever hell he believes in. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the Beast of... British Columbia. A lot of people don't know about him, I guess, if they're not, like, into true crime. I mean, I had never heard of him before this. and Really? So, yeah, I, like, really don't know. I guess I was under the bus. Er, under the bus. Under a rock. Well, when I was doing research on cases for this, I was like, oh my gosh, there are so many cases that we could do. Like, I found, I mean, I don't want to spoil it in case of a future episode, but I found this um, serial killer that's called the Boozy Barber. I, I found um, the axe murder of... Of Mount um, Pleasant? Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about doing that one too. That one was weird. The fact that he was able to go work at the children's hospital. 
Yeah, I saw that. Oh my gosh. So the background for people listening now is there was this guy who, I guess, murdered his whole family with an axe or something. And then he got released and was able to go work at the children's hospital in Vancouver, even though, like, two of the kid people he murdered were children. Yeah, I was like, what? Okay, like, do you not run a background check um, on people? (laughs) Yeah, oh man. All right, well. Good job, Tegan. Yeah, thanks. Well, we're not ending right now, Tegan. We have to pick our next country for our next case. So I've just pulled up this um, website (laughs) called random.country. And uh, you just click a button and you get a random country. Okay, Tegan, are you ready for your random country? I'm ready for my random country. Okay. Argentina. Ooh, that's fun. Mm -hmm, South America. So my random country is Germany. Ooh, that's exciting. Yes. So tune in next week and Tegan is going to tell us all about uh, true crime or murder in Argentina. And I will cover Germany. Thank you so much for listening to our awkwardness for however long this was. Yeah. (laughs) Um, We promise we'll get better at storytelling, Mm -hmm. but it's been really fun and I'm excited for what this has in store for us. The hardest part is going to be narrowing down a a case in Germany, but uh, yeah, it'll be really interesting and I'm excited for next week. Alrighty, I guess with that, goodbye everyone. Thanks for listening. If you can rate, comment, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on, that would be amazing. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. 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 See you next week. I don't think they're going to come back.